When I was growing up, I would often read missionary stories, stories of missionaries and that kind of told and recounted the great sacrifices they went through in life and how they had kind of counted the cost of following Jesus. Now, one such story um, is about a guy named Jim Elliott, probably my favorite one. Um, and Jim Elliott wrote in his journal in 1948, he's just a college student at this point, he writes this, he makes his ministers a flame of fire. Am I ignitable? God, deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be aflame. See, Jim, in 1948, was in the midst of a season where he was going around the United States, sharing the good news of Jesus, and kind of encouraging people to be sent on mission. But he realized that to be aflame, he had to let go of things that were temporary. He wrote in his journal that for him... This meant that he wanted to hold loosely to his life, his reputations, his possessions, and all other things that he kind of wanted to hold on to, but would get in the way of him worshiping God and being sent on mission. Jim, years later, would actually end up being a pioneer missionary. He let go of all these things and was a pioneer missionary in Ecuador, um, taking the gospel to tribes who had never heard the good news of Jesus. And actually, he ended up being killed while sharing, while trying to make contact with an unreached people group. And as I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, I want to be a flame for God. But what if I don't move away to another country? Are these counting the cost passages just for missionary? Can I still be a flame? So I picked up my Bible and I read Luke 9, 23 to 25. And it says this, Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit or lose their very self? Whoever? Wait, so Jesus is referring to whoever wants to be his disciple. So this is for anyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus. That's me. So I asked kind of, what does this passage mean, though? What does it mean to daily take up my cross and follow Jesus? In the context of all these other passages of counting the cost in the Bible, especially throughout the book of Luke, Jesus is saying, basically, that all these other things that you use to give you an identity, even good things, like family, your job, the culture you're from, any kind of meaningful relationship, your friends, your spouse, Anything that you look to for purpose and meaning in life, anything that's of ultimate importance, needs to be knocked down from the top spot and made no longer the ultimate thing. See, what Jesus is saying here is that in denying myself, my identity is now found in a a new community where God is first and the message of Jesus is so prominent. The the, The counting the cost passages that we find in the Bible, challenge what we hold as most important, as the ultimate thing in our life. And Jesus says, to be my disciple, that must be me. See, every believer needs to hold loosely to these things that are not God. This isn't just for missionaries. That's kind of what the first week of our study was about, letting God have the first and best place in our lives. And when we do that, when we make Jesus number one in our life, 
and we respond to his call to follow me, carry your cross, it is a life on mission. And one that looks remarkably different from anything else we see in the world. When we follow Jesus, we live according to the values of a new kingdom. One where Jesus is the king and everything else falls into place. We live a life of witness, desiring to see God glorified, made great in our life and in the life of others. So what I want to do today is take a look at kind of four things that we find in the books of Luke and Acts that tell us the way to live on mission as disciples of Jesus. So you think in Luke and Acts, Luke, the writer of the books, is concerned that if Jesus is our ultimate, then we will be inclusive of people, we will handle our possessions carefully, we will be ready to boldly proclaim the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus, and we will devote ourselves to prayer as we live on mission in the world. So I want to break down those four things. Um, and I've kind of got a, a P alliteration, the letter P. People, possessions, proclamation, and prayer. As we seek to be witnesses to the risen Christ, these things stand out. See, the gospel brings inclusivity as we share the message of grace to people who are, well, there's all kinds of, everyone, really, and especially people in Luke who are physically or financially disadvantaged or in need, people struggling with different sin than our own, and people who are from another culture or ethnic group than our own. In Acts, we find that Jesus is, has shown, has brought the good news to the poor. He came to bring good news to the poor, it says. And the church is doing this as they sell its possess their possessions. They give the proceeds to the, to the needy in Acts 2 and 4, so that the result is that no one is left in need. See, the message of the gospel and the call to discipleship lead us on mission to care for the disenfranchised people of our world, often through the generosity of those who follow and love Jesus. And all throughout Luke, Jesus is telling parables about how he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus delights to find the lost sheep. See, there's this quote that I, I've heard before, and I really think it gets at what the church is. It says this, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. See, Jesus says himself, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus spent time with tax collectors who were hated by so many people in society, and quote-unquote sinners, people who were looked down upon by the also quote-unquote religious elite because they outwardly looked different and acted differently than them, struggled with a different kind of sin. So the good news of Jesus says that all people, everybody, is broken. And that as sinners, we need to actually humble ourselves and not look down on other people who might be struggling with a different sin than us. People who might look differently than we do. The church is not a museum for saints for people who think they have it all together, but for those who recognize their need for grace. I think the story of the prodigal son kind of shows the humility that we should all have. Like the rebellious son who goes off, totally rebels against, um, lives in a way that is rebelling against kind of the way his father has shown him how to live, but he realizes what he's done, and he comes humbly back to his father asking for grace. You know what he gets shown? Amazing grace. 
not just forgiveness, but so much more. He's lavished grace. Oftentimes we're like that, but sometimes we're also like the older brother who was resentful and angry because not only did he look down on his brother for what he did, but he also thought that his work earned him the right to get the gifts that the father gave him. His pride and works were what he struggled with. And oftentimes, sometimes we, we struggle with this without even realizing that it's actually leading us further and further away from God. We hold on to our own goodness as meriting God's grace, but none of us merit God's grace. You know, when we worship God, we find that we can sit with a sense of awe at all that God has done for us through Christ. None of it deserved. And no matter our sin, all of it, a beautiful gift of grace. So here's a question for you. Are there people that you, maybe you can think of that we wouldn't necessarily want sitting next to us in church or with us in our small group or to be having breakfast with at Cora's some morning? Those are the people that we need to be thinking about. Jesus, in Luke 6, he even tells us that we need not to merely love those who will love us back in return, return our love, but also those who are our enemies, who aren't going to pay back what they owe and who are going to treat us wrongly. He goes a step further than just those who struggle with a different sin, even those who are our enemies. We need to, the gospel is an inclusive message. The other way we are inclusive is through loving those from ethnicities different from our own. You know, the gospel of Luke is the, is the, is the gospel where we find the parable of the Good Samaritan, loving his Jewish neighbor. Ethnically, Samaritans and Jews were just so different and socially so separate, but nevertheless, in God's kingdom, they were neighbors. And the church welcomes into its company people from all ethnic groups. You know, the picture of Revelation, the, the final picture of the church worshiping God together, it says specifically that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping God. And cross-cultural missions is doing this, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, as we're called to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, to people groups, every people group, even those who are unreached, who have never heard the good news of Jesus yet. I love how the gospel extends to everyone in the world and breaks down social barriers that the world puts up around us while, it, while it's spreading. So, when Jesus is my number one, I will love people that are not like me, those of other cultures, people who are poor, and even people who treat me wrongly or whose struggle is different than my own. This might mean actually going out of your way to talk to, to call, or ask someone how someone is doing, spending time with people who have a different kind of story than you, or maybe even different kind of political or social views than you do, and seeking to know their heart, not just what it looks like from a distance, but kind of get out of your house and click and get, put yourself in the other's shoes, actually, by spending time with them. The second thing we find in Luke Acts is that we are to handle our possessions very carefully. Jesus warns us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, it's so easy to want nice things for ourselves, and I find myself constantly asking myself, is my treasure in Christ or in created things? I was watching this show on HGTV called Mountain Life. Some of you might have seen it. Oh, those pictures, the houses that they go to are so beautiful. The landscapes around them, so beautiful. And I was watching it, and I was thinking to myself, I want that. That's beautiful. That could be worth working towards. Basically what I was thinking, oh, that's really cool. And then I paused, and I thought, 
you know what, I can wait for that. See, because I know that Jesus died and rose again, I don't need these things now. I can store up treasures on earth, but they're not, they're not going to last. All the real longings of beauty that I have will be fulfilled one day in heaven. God promises, says that there's riches, pleasures forevermore at his right hand. Because Jesus rose again, I know that I can wait for that. These other things can just get in the way of my call to be a witness and turn my attention from God. So when it comes to following Jesus, I, I know I need to place him as my number one to the point where, where I'm no longer distracted by anything, whether that's material possessions or family relationships, any kind of these good things that can become ultimate things that would prevent me from living out my call as a sent person. See, disciples of Jesus, we gotta, as disciples of Jesus, we must focus our entire lives to following him and let nothing distract us. So for us in our everyday, we need to view our finances and possessions as God's primarily and not our own. And be willing and ready to offer up um, what we have to those in need. In fact, even making room in our budget for others, giving to people less fortunate than, uh, less fortunate than us through things like Compassion International, New Life Mission, and other kind of uh, ministries that care for those who are in need around the world. We need to be imp- intentional about being generous. So then, when Jesus is number one in my life, I will handle my possessions carefully and use them not to serve myself, but to serve God and others. Another thing that we see in Acts are disciples boldly sharing the gospel when the culture around them is, is really hostile to it. You know, it wasn't a popular thing back in Acts to be sharing the gospel. It ended up with physical persecution. But for the disciples, Jesus was their number one. And so their life, their physical health, their reputation totally came second. In Acts 5, when the disciples are persecuted, they actually rejoice after they're basically flogged because they were counted as worthy to suffer for the sake of God's name. So the focal point of their lives that led them on mission, despite all the challenges, was God's glory. Hey, God's being made known and worshiping him, not their own reputation or social status or possessions. God was their ultimate. Paul even gets, he gets thrown in jail and he's still able to rejoice because God is ultimate in his life, not his circumstances. You know, I'll confess, this can be a real challenge. When I was a a high school student in New Brunswick, there was uh, quite a few times where sharing the gospel uh, wasn't met with uh, friendly um, remarks. It was, I was made fun of, I was uh, left out, and I kind of I have to admit it, I did not rejoice in that kind of suffering. Partly because I valued so much these other things. I valued being, um, having friends and being popular, and I really, really cared about what other people thought of me. And, and uh, when they looked down on me or made fun of me for following Christ, it really made me sad. And although it was fair for me to be kind of sad about it, what ended up happening is that I allowed it to silence me. And I, and I stopped being open about Jesus with my classmates. I was hampered basically by a lack of trust. And, and I kind of faced this struggle of, oh, is making Jesus number one really worth the cost? Is it really worth the cost that, that it's seeming to take right now, that I'm being left out, I'm being made fun of? The struggle was real. 
You know, I think uh, for some of us here, I think Jesus knows that the struggle is real. Don't withdraw from him, Ruth. And that was, that was actually one of the things that really helped me. Because I didn't have many other friends, I turned to the scriptures and worshiped God and grew in my knowledge of him. And the Psalms turned to them for lament. And uh, in worshiping God, I was able to, again, be kind of fueled for mission. And I realized that, you know, maybe if, if talking is about Jesus or if being known as a Christian among your classmates or coworkers is something that you fear, then maybe, like me, something else is number one where Jesus should be. It was through worshiping God again that I was picked up out of this kind of despair and encouraged again to share the good news with people at my school, with people on my sports teams. You know, this isn't always easy. And sometimes I hesitate when an opportunity might come up to share with someone that I'm a Christian. I'm not perfect in that regard, and God knows that I miss chances sometimes. But I think the challenge to step out boldly, to think about it, to to think, Jesus is my number one. And when we feel the Spirit nudging us to share the good news, to remember, make Jesus first, and then boldly share. You see, because when I love Jesus as my number one, I will be ready to boldly give an answer to the hope that I have, even when it's not popular, and despite what others might think and say of me. Because God's glory, Him being worshipped, is much more important than my own sense of well-being. Lastly, Jesus modeled a life of prayer. And Luke, he picks up on how essential prayer is to living as witnesses to God. And in both Luke, Acts and Luke, Jesus modeled this prayer life. He prays all the time. He gets up in the morning, he prays. He prays before he goes to another city to share the good news of the kingdom. He prays when he's arrested. He prays while he's on the cross. Jesus is praying all the time. And we see this happening again and again in the life of the early church. And it seems like in Acts, each time they pray, their prayers are are answered in just extraordinary ways. Uh, In Acts 12, Peter's in prison, and he gets miraculously released from prison, following the the church praying on his behalf. See, we should be praying frequently, not just because Jesus tells us to do it in the midst of hardship, but because it also focuses us on Christ. You know, when I think about prayer and, and worship, how it oriented the early church towards God, I picture Paul and Silas in prison, praying and worshiping God, singing hymns, and boom, a strong earthquake strikes, which they could have easily, at this point, their, their chains are loose, they could have easily just bolted, said, here we go, this is our out, let's go. Instead, they're praying, and they wait for God. They listen to God. And what happens is the jailer, who, if any prisoner had left, would have been totally, he would have been killed. The jailer actually comes to know Jesus. See, this opportunity through their worship, even in the hardest of times, because they're in prayer, is an opportunity to have the jailer not just physically, but spiritually saved. See, Paul and Silas waited on God and were used as witnesses for him because they weren't looking out for themselves as number one, trusting in God's wisdom instead of their own wit, which could have got them out of there. And, God, and instead, God used them to witness to others. So every day, in any kind of situation, pray to God, not as a last-ditch effort, but as a habit and a way of reminding yourself 
that Jesus is your number one. Allow your decisions not to be based solely off of what seems to be the natural course of action or what everyone else would do, but pray to God who knows your needs and gives the Holy Spirit to guide you. So if Jesus is my number one, I will devote myself to prayer in good times and bad times, trusting in God's wisdom and not my own wisdom, possessions, or connections. So the question is, if these are the things that we do when we follow Jesus, why exactly do we meet on Sunday mornings? You know, can't we just go and do these things on mission in the world and not meet? You know, the answer to that, I think, is no. We cannot cut out gathered missions, or gathered worship of God, sorry, and expect to be read, led rightly on mission for him. Something's going to take that top spot if we're not worshiping God, if God is not our ultimate, whether that's performance in our mission, whether that's getting along well with the people that we're helping, whether that's feeling good about what we're doing. Following Jesus is something that's countercultural, especially as it makes God number one and not our own lives or work. It's not about what we do. See, the ultimate goal of life is not mission. It's worship. John Piper has a helpful quote. It says this, Mission, missions, is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. That is, worship of the one true God in, in every space of the world. People are worshiping God, but not everybody. Worship is ultimate. Not missions, because God is ultimate. Not mankind or humanity. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. See that? The unifying, the common denominator that keeps us on mission is loving God and worshiping Him. Missions is not the ultimate goal. Worship is. Worshiping God reminds us of what God did for us. And we stand in awe of that. So why do we share the good news? Is it just because of obedience to Christ to be witnesses? Yeah, but it's so much more than that. Because you know what? Obedience is not something that we do to gain God's acceptance. We don't obey to be accepted by God. We obey because we've already been accepted by God because of, what, because of what God did for us through Jesus Christ. That comes first. That's what motivates us to be obedient, to follow and live on mission for God. We don't come to God to receive something else or, or come to God for the sake of getting or gaining something else. So you can work your tail off and not be satisfied because you're coming to God not for God, but for something else. Something else that your heart, wa- heart wants. And that's not what it means to worship and be sent on mission in our world. We come to God for God. To honor Him, and we love Him because He first loved us. We see this in Christ. That the sending God has sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross to save us. And then Jesus sends us out full of the Holy Spirit to live as sent people, followers of him on mission. Our worship is the fuel for mission. Worship is ultimate because God is. How well we perform in those four areas, those four Ps, that is not the focus here. Focusing on Christ will lead us to live lives of mission in those areas. In this book I'm reading called The Worship Pastor by Zach Hicks, there's this great quote about how worship, how having Jesus as our first and best, 
leads us to mission. It says this, good worship, brimming with the gospel, cannot contain itself. When God, out of the overflow of his love, gives Jesus to his people in worship, the unavoidable spillover of this love is missions. As the people go out and bear witness to Christ in the world of work, in our daily vocations, deeds of mercy, in our pursuing justice, and caring for the disenfranchised, and declaring the good news, evangelism. Now, check this picture out up here. See, mission doesn't replace worship. Actually, it flows naturally from it, as we've discussed. When we gather for worship and we reorient our lives around Jesus as our number one, we're sent on mission not to do things so that God accepts us or so that we receive blessings, but for his glory alone, to make him great. So in this picture, this is, this is from Zach X as well, the, this is like the circulatory system of the world. If the body, if our body is like the world, it is worship that is the heart, and the veins are mission. That's how we function in it as witnesses. They go hand in hand. But we can't take out the heart of gathering together to meet with God in worship and then tie the veins together and expect blood to be pumped into the veins of mission. It just won't work. You need the heart. We must love God and worship first. Must love and worship God first. And from that, serve and love others. So what keeps us from being distracted and tempted to make idols? Worship. What fuels us for mission? Worship. So as we come to the table, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. And let's commit today to covenant, to make Jesus first and best in our life. So I'll ask the, if the, uh, those who are going to help serve communion, the worship team can come back up. You know, Jesus' body was shed for us. His blood symbolizes a new covenant for us. You know, oftentimes when we come to the table, we come and we confess, and we're made right with God and with others. And so I encourage you today to take some time to confess to God about some of the things that have become or have competed for the top spot in your life. Covenant with God today to worship Him and love Him as your ultimate. Him and Him alone. Don't worry about what you will do for God, but commit yourself to making Him the most ultimate and most important thing in your life. And in doing so, you will commit yourself to follow Him on mission. Now, if you aren't a follower of Jesus Christ, um, oftentimes when we, when we have the Lord's Supper, we ask that you let the bread and the cup pass in front of you. But here's the question. What's keeping you from following Jesus today? You know that Jesus died and shed his body for you out of love. And so we pray for you and encourage you to not delay, but trust in Jesus as your loving Savior. So let's quiet our hearts now. And let's pray. Lord, we come to you today to confess that so often we have made other things the ultimate, the most important things in our lives. Lord, would you show us those things that compete for our ultimate allegiance? And Lord, today would you start a new work in our hearts to follow you as first and best. Not to worry about what we do, but to allow the worship of you to guide us, to send us out on mission. We pray these things in your name.